Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Upwards of 4 billion people around the planet tuned in to the funeral of Queen Elizabeth. We meekly beseech thee, O Father, to raise us from the death of sin unto the life of righteousness. They heard a gospel-centered message from a devoted life. She would love to lay her crown before the King of all kings. We'll hear from Albert Moeller. I am just thankful to God for the resounding truth of the gospel that thundered and echoed through Westminster Abbey, even in a secular age. And President Biden makes a pronouncement. The pandemic is over. But for our kids, much of the damage has been done. And we're seeing massive learning losses. We have all this and more. I'm Don Crow, coming to you from my home station of WAVA in Washington, D.C. You can catch my program each weekday through our live stream at WAVA.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Take a moment to follow the Christian Outlook on Twitter at TC Outlook. That's TC Outlook. Thanks for joining us. We'll begin in Great Britain and the funeral held on Monday this week for Queen Elizabeth. It was 1952 when she took the throne and for 70 years served her nation. The service this week was a markedly Christian event. O merciful God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life, in whom whosoever believeth shall live, though he die, and whosoever liveth and believeth in him shall not die eternally. Who has taught us by his holy apostle St. Paul not to be sorry as men without hope for them that sleep in him. We meekly beseech thee, O Father, to raise us from the death of sin unto the life of righteousness, that when we shall depart this life, we may rest in him as our hope is, this our sister doth. And that at the general resurrection in the last day, we may be found acceptable in thy sight and receive that blessing which thy well-beloved Son shall then pronounce to all that love and fear thee, saying, Come, ye blessed children of my Father, receive the kingdom prepared for you from the beginning of the world. Grant this, we beseech thee, O merciful Father, through Jesus Christ, our mediator and redeemer. For a queen that was marked by personal devotion to Christ, I turn to Peter Herridge of Premier, a Christian media organization in the UK. Would you agree that perhaps a lot of uh, Britishers' hearts are more open to the faith now than they might have been just even a few weeks ago? Well, you know, you, you have to remember that only 2%, 2% of the UK population go to church regularly. But what we do have is state religion, as it were, which is the Church of England. And I think that something of a great awakening may have occurred in the hearts and minds of people as they realized over the last few days just what it was that inspired their monarch. Queen Elizabeth uh, actually was very overt in proclaiming what her Christian faith meant for her. But actually, it's only when her life has been examined, and boy, has it been examined this last few days. Mm. In the UK, 
It has been wall to wall, Queen Elizabeth, across all media. Everyone has worn black. The whole population has had a traumatic period of reflection and mourning. There's probably not too many dry eyes in too many houses across the UK today. But what we've actually come to realize is that this wonderful lady, this very old lady, had lived out her faith very, very conscientiously for a very long time. Now, I met her three times. I've been to Buckingham Palace a number of times. And I can tell you that uh, everyone who ever met her walked away pretty awestruck that this person uh, had spent time with them. And I can say that um, my prayer, because it was a wonderful a couple of services. There was the big service in Westminster Abbey, the state funeral, and then there was the committal in St. George's Chapel, Windsor. I can I can honestly say they couldn't have been more Christian. They couldn't have been more explicitly Christian. And uh, from the very first verses of the, of the songs, right through the hymns, the preaching, the prayers, it was very, very clear. And the Queen had a huge part to play in crafting these services. It was very clear that she wanted to make one final statement to the country, her family, and indeed the world. And, and you know, the fact that so many people around the world have watched it, have taken on board some of the messages, is a remarkable thing. You know, I worked with Billy Graham in the 80s, and uh, God bless him, he, he knew the Queen better many, many times. And, it's just remarkable to think that this lady, in her final act, has reached probably more people than any church minister, any evangelist, yeah. any special program of any church initiative than anybody else in history. And um, I think we should give thanks that God has used this remarkable lady in quite a remarkable way. And one more point before this first break, Peter, and that is... Out of what you've just said, one of the things I noted here in the American media, at least the part of it that I watched, was it seemed like for the first time there was even more talk about the reality of heaven, the fact that she was going to meet uh, her uh, dear father and other members of her family. That came up time and time again, that uh, there was no uh, kind of hedging around this idea, is there a life after this one? That came through loud and clear. It absolutely did. Right, right at the very end of the committal service, um, you, you were hearing in song and in the prayers and in the benediction that this life is not the end, that this life is really just a dress rehearsal for the real life that's to come. And, you know, one of the wonderful phrases was that uh, given to the Queen was that she would love to lay her crown before the King of all kings, which, of course, she's done today. Hundreds of millions, perhaps in the billions of people, tuned in to watch the funeral for the United Kingdom's longest-serving monarch. What they heard was the gospel. Here's Albert Moeller reporting from his briefing program the day after. Let's take a closer look at the funeral program itself, because it was not something that was just created out of nothing. 
It was created out of the Christian tradition, out of the reading of Scripture, and out of the Church of England's Book of Common Prayer. It's venerable service book and book of prayer that goes all the way back to the era of the Protestant Reformation. There was so much Scripture. Now, there were some confusing comments made in the course of yesterday's state event. And for that matter, England today is a rather theologically confused place. More about that in future editions of the briefing, particularly looking at the religious dimensions of the reign of Britain's new king, King Charles III. But we need to go back to the service, because in Westminster Abbey, the service was actually filled with Christian scripture, readings from the Word of God, and the Declaration of Christian Truth. For example, in the bidding prayer, the dean of Westminster cited this, calling all persons in the cathedral to commend Queen Elizabeth to the care and keeping of Almighty God. And you can say, well, that could sound rather generic, but the very next words are these. O merciful God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life, in whom whosoever believeth shall live, though he die, and whosoever liveth and believeth in him shall not die eternally, who has taught us By the holy apostle St. Paul, not to be sorry as men without hope for them that sleep in him. We meekly beseech thee, O Father, to raise us from the dead of sin unto the life of righteousness, that when we shall depart this life, we may rest in him as our hope in this sister doth, and that at the general resurrection in the last day, we may be found acceptable in thy sight and receive that blessing, which thy well-beloved son shall then pronounce to all that love and fear thee, saying, Come, ye blessed children of my father, receive the kingdom prepared for you from the beginning of the world. Grant this, we beseech thee, O merciful Father, through Jesus Christ, our mediator and redeemer. Amen. End quote. It's just a reminder of the fact that even though Britain itself right now is a very secular and very confused nation when it comes to spiritual issues, it was reminded in the state funeral of the solidity and eternal truth of God's word as those words were heard by multiple millions and they were heard undiluted as they came through scriptural readings. As yesterday's service came to a close, the Archbishop of Canterbury himself offered the prayer known as the Commendation. And even as all who were there were standing, the Archbishop commended the soul of the departed Queen unto God, her eternal Judge, and unto Christ, her eternal Redeemer. The last words of that commendation include such important Christian biblical truths. The prayer goes in this way, quote, Go forth, O Christian soul, from this world. In the name of God, the Father Almighty, who created thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, who suffered for thee. In the name of the Holy Spirit, who was poured out upon thee and anointed thee. In communion with all the blessed saints, and aided by the angels and archangels and all the armies of the heavenly host, may thy portion this day be in peace and thy dwelling in the heavenly Jerusalem. Amen. There's so much to see, so much to observe, so much to learn about these great state events, and it is a missed opportunity if we do not pause with so many other issues certainly demanding our attention to give due consideration to these things. And by the way, I am just thankful to God for the resounding truth of the gospel and the readings of God's Word that thundered and echoed through Westminster Abbey, even in a secular age, perhaps in a secular age, They take on an all-new power simply because of how they break through even secular defenses. As a Christian, I just have to tell you, I was extremely happy to hear such biblical truth declared in the context of a situation in which the queen, by her own instructions for her funeral, had a final say. 
It is also interesting to note that it was released that the British government had been practicing for this funeral for a matter of many years and potentially of decades, with a mock-up of the events held in an abandoned aircraft hangar outside of London. The fact is, I think we can be pretty much assured that that kind of preparation is not being prepared or planned or practiced for our own funeral. But here's the promise of the gospel. Our funeral may be less grand, but as we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the promises are just as infinitely powerful and present. I love the image that is found in the promise of the closing chapters of the book of Revelation, where in the description of the new Jerusalem, we are told that the kings of the earth will bring into God's new Jerusalem their treasures. That includes, by the way, the treasures you saw so incredibly depicted and evident in the state funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. Sometimes we take encouragement in little things. Sometimes we take encouragement in grand things. Those are more rare. I hope it was helpful today for we as Christians to think about it. Coming up, the president makes an announcement. The pandemic is over. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, we've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics and to test them quantitatively requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. On Sunday, a week ago, President Biden made an appearance on 60 Minutes and was interviewed by Scott Pelley. He made news. Mr. President, first Detroit auto show in three years. Yeah. Is the pandemic over? The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's, but the pandemic is over. If you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. And so I think it's changing. And I think this is a perfect example of it. So, the pandemic is over. It was somewhat amusing to see the administration's efforts over the week to walk back the president's pretty clear language. And, in many respects, so much of the damage has already been done. I'm thinking particularly of our kids and the toll two and a half years of pandemic has taken on them. For many families, COVID was the final straw. They pulled their kids out of public school and have started homeschooling. I turn to Lance Azumi author of The Homeschool Boom. Talk, if you would, first about the impact of COVID on our kids' educational experiences over the last couple of years and really what it unveiled, what it revealed that was a shock to many parents and even others as to what was actually happening to their children in the typical public school setting. Well, you know, a, a huge amount happened, as you alluded to in your opening, Don. I mean, uh, COVID affected every part of American life, and certainly that was the case with parents and their children. I mean, one day the kids were at school, everything going on pretty much as normal, and then the next day, and for quite some time, especially in many states, uh, the kids were forced to be at home learning through distance learning or remote uh, learning. And uh, you know, one of the problems with that is the schools were totally unprepared to do that pivot 
from the regular classroom uh, setting to this distance learning, and the teachers uh, really had no training in it. There, the uh, Zoom uh, education, the Zoom learning that was going on was at best minimal in many cases, and so you had uh, a, a school system, a public school system that was unprepared, and therefore they ended up doing uh, this type of learning, this remote learning, very badly in most cases. And so what was the natural result of that is that you had students who suffered huge amounts of learning loss, and we're seeing uh, this uh, play out uh, in uh, test scores that are coming out. There are massive learning losses. There's uh, you know, uh, research that now shows that uh, students have lost anywhere from four to six to seven months in, uh, lear in re learning in reading and mathematics. You had the national test scores that just came out recently showing, you know, massive uh, dips in learning. I mean, the, the steepest declines in decades. And so you, the students are having massive problems. And that's also, uh, you know, not even to talk about the, uh, the mental and emotional problems that students were having. Uh, you look at the statistics and you see that there are huge increases in the amount of uh, students who have visited emergency rooms with uh, suicidal thoughts, with mental health issues ranging from anywhere from anxiety and depression to things much more serious than that. And so, you know, you have this huge crisis in American education right now as a result of crisis and the inability of the regular public school systems to address that crisis crisis. And naturally, what happens is that uh, parents look at this and they see how badly off their children are uh, in, in that situation. And many parents made the natural decision that, look, I'm already supplementing what the public schools are doing, having to teach my kids uh, because they're not learning through their uh, regular public schools anymore. So I'm going to actually homeschool my children and I'm going to um, uh, pull them out of the regular public schools and, uh, you know, take control of my children's education. And that's what you've seen uh, over the COVID period, the public uh, school unenrollment, you know, parents unenrolling their kids from the, the regular public schools has hit 2 million kids across the country. Wow. And so uh, what have most of those kids uh, been, where have most of those kids been going? Well, some have gone to private schools, some have gone to charter schools, but the vast bulk of them have gone to, uh, to the homeschooling uh, movement. And you see massive increases in homeschooling across the country. The, uh, uh, before COVID, you might have had 5% of kids who were homeschooled, but, uh, uh, you know, in the COVID crisis caused this uh, percentage to mushroom to you have probably now anywhere from 11% uh, to more uh, of kids across the country who are being homeschooled. So you're talking about at least one in 10 kids who are being homeschooled. And it's even more in some communities like African-Americans where you have um, probably uh, right now uh, going from 3% uh, of the African-American population or families to probably 16 to 18% of African-American families who are homeschooling their kids. And uh, I know that you're in uh, the uh, Washington, D.C. area, Don, and you just look at the states that border D.C., uh, Virginia, you had um, a 40 percent increase in homeschooling be, uh, after the pandemic hit. And so they're right now 62,000 uh, uh, students are being homeschooled in Virginia. And uh, if you look in Maryland, you had a 54 percent increase in homeschooling in Maryland. And that uh, puts the number now to 43,000 kids in Maryland who are being homeschooled. These are huge numbers. And it's all 
all because parents have seen the inability of the schools to deal with the situation and have decided to take control of their children's education. I'm sure you're well aware, I can remember, in the early years when homeschooling started, one of the criticisms leveled was it's really isolating your children. It's not giving them any opportunity for social development or social interaction. And as you say in the opening sentence of Chapter 6, these people imagine a child sitting at the kitchen table with a parent by his or her side, and that's it. Talk about the fact that the homeschooling does not have to pay a price of lack of social involvement or engagement. Yes, I think that's right, Don. I think one of the biggest misconceptions about homeschooling is that, hey, maybe your child might uh, learn their basics you know, better homeschooling, but they'll never make any friends. They'll yeah. never be able to socialize with other kids. And nothing, again, could be further from the truth. You look at modern homeschooling now, and there are just an incredible array of different types of homeschooling groupings of parents and kids around the country in neighborhoods, in communities, anywhere from homeschool co-ops that I mentioned a little bit earlier uh, to um, things that are called pandemic pods where people get together uh, uh, and bring their kids and they may uh, pay, uh, pool their money to pay for a teacher to teach their kids. All kinds of interesting uh, groupings of kids that you have sports organizations that have grown up uh, amongst homeschoolers so that their kids can have the ability to engage in sports. Many states actually have uh, give uh, students the ability to uh, actually uh, homeschool uh, at home, but then also to engage in extracurricular activities at the regular public school. Uh, in high schools, uh, for example, you often have the ability of high school students to uh, co-enroll in uh, local community colleges and take some of the more difficult classes that parents may uh, worry about teaching You know, at the community college rather than at home, which again gives uh, uh, kids an opportunity to socialize. So there are all these different types of socialization opportunities, and you have the ability as a homeschooler to take your kid on a field trip, um, you know, not just once a year as it is in many schools, but maybe once a week, you know, once a month, you know, maybe a, a couple times a week. Whatever, you know, works for you and your child in terms of increasing their learning, you have control over that, and you get that ability to um, uh, increase the socialization of your child. It's not just with kids their own age, but with kids of different ages and with adults so that you end up having kids who are often better socialized as homeschoolers than if they were just in a regular public school with only kids their own age. Coming up, you need the local church. You need it. And Scripture affirms that. Bob Bernie, when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. It's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. It's a look at today's most compelling stories and provides responses from key conservatives in media and politics. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Don Crow. I'm just going to watch Church from Home via live stream. 
That was something you hardly ever would have heard before the pandemic. Now it's something common. And it's part of a broader problem of what I'll just label theological illiteracy. Here's my friend Bob Burney from The Word, 880 AM in Columbus. Most Americans believe worshiping alone or with just family is a valid replacement for attending church. Brand new study from Lifeway Research in conjunction with Legionnaire Fellowship It's the Biennial State of Theology Study, sponsored by Legionnaire Ministries. And the percentages of people who believe, I don't need church. I can worship by myself. I don't need to be around other people. I can be in my house. I can watch on TV. The percentage of Americans that believe that has increased rapidly since covid In March of 2020, at the start of the COVID pandemic, 58% of Americans said worshiping alone or with one's family was, quoting, a valid replacement for regularly attending church services, with 26% strongly agreeing. Fast forward to 2022. That is now 66% of Americans saying, I don't need a local church. 66%. I can worship just as well all by myself. And by the way, you can worship by yourself. But the Bible is so incredibly clear, so incredibly clear. You and I need fellowship, accountability, of other believers. Quote, the study found that over half of Americans don't believe Christians are obligated to join a local church. 36% contend that every Christian must fulfill this obligation. So you got 56% said, you don't need a church. 36% said, yeah, you do need a church. And then the uh, study, the uh, state of theology actually goes downhill after that. Additionally, 67% believe the worship of all religions is acceptable to God. That's universalism. Christianity, Judaism, Islam, doesn't make any difference. 67% of Americans believe, it's okay, whatever you believe, you believe. 55% believe that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. So, in other words, 55% of Americans deny the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, 53% believe he was, quote, just a great teacher and not God. 59% do not believe that the Holy Spirit is a personal being, but simply a force. 60% say religious beliefs are subjective rather than objective truth. And it goes on and on and on. America has lost their theology. Why? Because the church has lost its theology. The liberals a long time ago stopped believing the Bible, denying the truth of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture. They did that a long time ago. 
Today, many evangelicals do not deny the authority of Scripture. They just don't want to upset anybody by teaching sound doctrine. They don't want to offend anybody. They don't want to, you know, upset anybody. And it all began with the ridiculous and unscriptural seeker-sensitive movement that swept through evangelicalism like a plague. Don't teach doctrine because doctrine divides. Well, doctrine should be taught with love, compassion, the love of Christ. But we are commanded. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for. Most of you know what's at the top of the list. Number one, above all else, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for what? Say it out loud, class. Doctrine. Biblical illiteracy in the American church has never been this bad. I expect it in the liberal churches, but it's rampant in evangelical churches as well. Folks, listen. You need the local church. You need it. And Scripture affirms that. Coming up... What does it really mean to be the people of God? Community, when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, we've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics and to test them quantitatively requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. I resonated with what Bob Bernie was saying in our last segment. The church today is weak, in large part as a result of the biblical and theological illiteracy he was highlighting. Our lack of commitment to the assembling of ourselves together is part of that. Simply put, we need one another. Christian Johnson of CCM Magazine turned to Justin Kendrick, lead pastor of Vox Church in New England. Uh, so what does that actually mean, uh, the sacred us? Who, who is the sacred? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, on the cover of the book, uh, the sacred is like really pretty and white, and the us is really messy and sloppy. And uh, the design was kind of to give us a picture of what we're talking about. And that is that, you know, God created us for community. He created us for deep friendships, for deep relationship. And I think a lot of people today, we want that, but we don't know how to do it. You know, like a, a new uh, poll I just heard, more people are honestly confessing that they're lonely than ever. And I think it's been a problem for a long time, but we just haven't been willing to say it. And so I think we all know that we need close relationship, but we just don't know how to do it. And uh, the people of God, that's the sacred us. The church is not supposed to be a program that happens on Sunday. It's supposed to be a people that gather around the truth of God's grace and build family out of it. And so the book kind of explores uh, what does that look like and how in the world do we do it without killing each other. And so uh, 
<laughs> so that's the idea behind the sacred us. I know you brought up the pandemic. Um, actually, in the first chapter of the book, you, you kind of talk heavily about the pandemic. Yep. It broke out in 2019 and on through. Um, still kind of lingering on a bit today, but right. we're finally getting through that. But, um, you know, what effect did that really have on you and your ministry? Yep. And I know it took a toll on a lot of people. Absolutely. Yeah, I think for us, uh, it really forced us to ask some very, very important questions. I mean, looking back through the pandemic, I would say, in so many ways, I'm actually grateful for the process God's brought us through, you know, but, um, but it really forced us to ask, like, what do we believe about community? What do we believe about church? What are the essentials, you know, and, and thank God that we can meet over video and that we can use technology. That's awesome. But there's nothing like proximity that, you know, uh, Solomon says like uh, better the neighbor next door than the brother far away. Something about being in the same room, being in the same space is essential to our faith. And there's a power in a gathering, a power in the gathered people. And I think the, the value of community is so important. So mm. important. Yeah. I, the word actually says, don't neglect the fellowship of the saints. And, and yeah. together. so I, I think you're head on uh, with that. And, and that's why I'm so glad that you wrote this book. Um, I know you talked even within that, that really you can't please everybody. You know, there were some people complaining about wearing masks or not doing enough. I think one of the things that is it, showed us that we've made uh, minor things, major issues, and that we've actually missed the bigger things. And so like we argued about a lot of things that were secondary about when should we gather, how much. And I, I understand that the people are passionate about these things, but oftentimes it was at the expense of our commitment to the people of God and our commitment to community. And so I think that in our culture and in our time, we've adopted this idea of individualism so deeply that we think, hey, I need a personal relationship with Jesus. And then, yeah, the, the church or Christians, they can be like sort of a second thing. But what I talk about in the book a lot is that that's actually just bad theology, that to understand God is to understand that he's actually triune, that he's Father, Son, and Spirit. And there is this dynamic relationship that exists at the center of the Godhead. So if you want to understand God, you have to understand that he's relationship. And the only way that you know him is in the context of relationship. Mm -hmm. And so, so in other words, relationships are not like a secondary issue if you're a follower of Jesus. They're a primary issue. And so it can't be, well, I have a relationship with God, and then I kind of like don't really do church or community. It's like, well, he didn't really leave that option open to us. He said we're a body, and that means that you can't just chop off your hands, you know, and uh, mm -hmm. cut off your legs. And so that's an uncomfortable idea, especially for individuals like we are, right, in our country, in our time. And there's a lot of good things that come with individualism, but I think that one of the bad things is we forgot that God made us to need each other. Even just in the introduction, uh, you had the yeah. phrase uh, less about the things of church and more yeah. about the soul. Um, yeah. you know, so what, what does that really uh, mean? Yeah, you know, I think for 2,000 years, uh, Christians have been arguing about church government, church structures, but that's not what this book is about. This book is about what does it really mean to be the people of God? Like, what does it mean to build deep relationships with followers of Jesus, and how do we do it? In other words— church was never supposed to be a polished program that we attend. It was supposed to be a community of believers that we belong to. And so do I belong to those in my community of faith, or is it just peripheral relationships that I leverage for my own desires? I think for a lot of Christians, churches become a routine, 
And uh, I'm not here to critique the routine. People do it different ways. And honestly, I'm open to a lot of ways that you could do church. But my attitude is if you don't have the substance, if you don't know how to go deep in relationship, uh, you're never going to have a deep relationship with God. You know, I'll just say, you know, I, I felt like you stepped on some of my toes, you know, just <laughs> as I was going through it, um, you know, because oftentimes we do kind of get in the routine, especially I think the pandemic kind of broke away the family and relationships we were building in church. Yes. Um, so I think that kind of pushed us into our shell. But even just this book made me realize I need to get back relationship oriented instead of just so individualistic about my relationship with God. Yeah, totally. And in the book, I tell the story of Pia Ferenkoff, who is this mm-hmm. this woman who um, she grew up in Boston. She had nine siblings, big family. And uh, years ago, she was found dead in her car in her garage. And the crazy thing about the story, she wasn't murdered. They don't know how she died, but she had been dead. Medical examiners figured out that she had been dead for 1,817 days, that for almost five years, this woman with dozens of nieces and nephews, family members and friends, no one noticed she was gone for almost five years. And that's obviously an extreme example, but that's the world we've created, a world where, hey, everything is automated, everything is direct deposit, everything is ordered online, that we don't actually come face to face with people anymore. And so I'm not against the technology, but my question is, at what cost are we living these automated lives. And I think for a lot of us, um, you know, if we're honest, there really is a loneliness that um, we don't know how to fix. And so in this book, I, I just challenge people to find a few other Christians and start to practice these seven principles and watch what happens. And what you find is, wow, the friendships that I really needed that I maybe wasn't even willing to like invest in, they're so worth it. They're so worth it. Even though it's hard, they're so worth it. Coming up, I think one of the most dangerous things in any community is is comparison. More with Justin Kenrick when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Come and see, look on this mystery, the Lord of the universe. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. The commitment to a church is, first and foremost, the outworking of a person's commitment to Christ. As an outworking of that Christ commitment, the commitment to a church is a disciplined devotion of oneself to a body, a community. We are embodied souls, and we are changed and transformed as we live our lives out with one another. Let's return for a few more minutes of Pastor Justin Kendrick with CCM Magazine's Christian Johnson. I think sometimes we get so caught up in social media, we, we don't enjoy life itself as much. You know, you'll see people, they'll go somewhere just to take the picture and not actually enjoy. Being, That's right. You know. It's true. Uh, <laughs> and I think it becomes, I mean, Christian, you know it, I know it. It becomes a comparison train, too, where if you're not careful, you see other people that have something you don't. And I think one of the most dangerous things in any community is is comparison, because God's writing a story through your life that's different than the story he's writing through mine. And I think, you know, part of maturing in Jesus is to be okay with that and be able to celebrate what God's doing in Christian right now and not have it be a reflection on what he's not doing in me. There are some principles that you talk about towards the end of the book. Um, Can you share that with us? 
Yeah, for sure. So I talk about seven different principles in uh, in community that help us go deeper, right? So I'll just give you a couple of them, uh, maybe ones that you don't expect. But one that I think is pretty central is this idea that vulnerability creates connection, you know, that um, that this this whole concept that we can't really have deep connections until we start to share the difficult stuff. And I think, you know, again, in our world where we're always filtering and editing and kind of cleaning things up, there's a danger in that because, uh, you know, I don't want anybody in my living room until it's vacuumed and perfect. And, and I think that there are some, sometimes in life, you have to, you have to let people in your living room when it's not vacuumed and perfect, you know, and, and let, let people see you with your hair down because when you do, what you'll find is that they have an unvacuumed living room too. And that's okay. And and that's what actually knits our hearts together in a deeper way. And so, you know, you think about the deepest relationships in your life. What are they from? They're from people that you probably went through something difficult with, you know, and you saw ugly sides of them and made it out the other end, you know. And so I think that Christians need to actually learn to be intentional. Paul talks about it in Second Corinthians where he says that his heart is wide open to them and then he asks them, widen your heart. And I like that because, you know, like we, we think open your heart. If you open a door, all you got to do is turn the knob and it opens. But if you widen the door, you got to like take the trim off and knock the wall down. And you know, it's painful, you know. And so widening our lives is going to be difficult. And that's what vulnerability is all about. But then we create connections. So in that chapter, I talk about how do you actually cultivate a life where you're able to be vulnerable and not insecure. And so every principle has some real direct application and then some steps you can take afterwards to apply it into your life. That concludes our program today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, go to christianoutlook.com and take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. And never miss these and other great conversations. Thanks for joining us. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pushan and Michael Cook, I'm Don Crow. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook. But it flew away from her reach, so she ran away in her sleep.